sustain us. No other public radio station can say this and know it's true that we are community powered at KPFA. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sight this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is uh, October the 4th, I believe. October the 4th. That means that tonight on uh, television, you can watch the vice presidents uh, battle it out. Yes, there's a debate. By the vice presidents, I mean, what are their names again? I, I mustn't be cavalier about this election thing. I like the word cavalier. Uh, the president used the word cavalier referring to uh, Donald Trump, but that was early in the game. <laughs> Thank you. I, I don't think that fits anymore. Um, actually, uh, several people have called um, Hillary cavalier. Best of all is Matt, uh, Chris Matthews. Chris Matthews, that's the one. He called Hillary Clinton charming. He used the word several times when he was discussing the next president, God bless her. And I, I, I couldn't help but laugh because, of course, Chris Matthews is, uh, what do you call that? He's an enthusiast. I like journalists who are enthusiastic about whatever they believe anyway. It is important, folks, uh, to remember that the vice president of these United States is not is not the little uh, job they used to say that it was a job where you put people to keep them out of the way but actually um think about it uh the well a lot of people say it's an audition for the top job in the beginning of our nation um the vice president what is it the votes were counted and the top two guys were president and then vice president so if you got you know a few less votes you could be the VP. <laughs> okay, I think of the tragedy of Al Gore, the late, well, the fate, the fate, the fate of Al. That, oh, well, I just, I can't bear to think about it. I, I'm so, I promise myself no more, no more weeping and wailing. Uh, 
He did get, of course, the popular vote. He won that. But he stuck around there for eight years helping Bill Clinton and, of course, should have been president. But uh, his presidency was snatched away by the Supreme Court. God bless the Supreme Court. Yes, Thomas, Thomas, Clarence Thomas once again. My head is spinning with all this stuff. Uh, Clarence Thomas was on the court by then, 1991-92. He was selected. (laughs) One of the great failures of the Senate to listen to a woman, Anita Hill, tried to stop that. Uh, Tried to tell the Senate this wasn't the right guy. Barbara Boxer says that the confirmation of Clarence Thomas is the thing she most regrets as she leaves office. She's finishing her political career now, and they asked her what was it that she regretted the most. And uh, sad, sad, sad. Check out a movie called Confirmation on HBO if you are interested in that story. We all know that the Supreme Court may be a more important job than that of the president, but... Tell it to the media. Anyway, think back over time, at least uh, the 20th century, Harry Truman. Uh, Roosevelt was in, believe it or not, his fourth term, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. When he died, Harry Truman uh, became president and dropped a couple of atomic bombs. And then we had Lyndon Johnson who also came to office during a war, I believe that was called the Vietnam War, right? And you know what happened then. Last of all, I think of uh, George Herbert, Herbert Bush. Remember George Herbert Bush? He was once a vice president. Never mind. Uh, I'll remember their names before dinner time, and I, I guess I will try to watch these two guys tonight and see if they offer... Any uh, <laughs> any hope I brought in today. I, I was just leaving the house and I snatched up my New Yorker, the one for October the 3rd. And I was reading it on the way here today and I'm in shock. I don't want to I don't want to express any opinions, but I just want to refer you to this terrifying profile of a German neo-Nazi. says here, this is in the New Yorker, it's written by Thomas Meany, M-E-A-N-E-Y, and it's titled Germany's New Nationalists, October the 3rd, the New Yorker profiles. Uh, Germany's resurgent far right has a surprising face, yes. She is the head of a a party, new party, the AFD party. That's alternative for Deutschland. Uh, That means an alternative for Germany, of course. Now, I'm looking at her picture. And she's a a knockout. She's a 41-year-old. I don't know how to describe. She has this short, dark hair, bright-eyed, just a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Her name is, I'm not sure I'm even going to pronounce it right, Frauke, F-R-A-U-K-E. That's Frau, and then put a K-E on the end of it. Uh, 
seems like girl, I don't know. Anyway, Frauke Petri, P-E-T-R-Y. She is leading a new populist party that has become Germany's most significant right-wing force since the Nazis. <coughs> I'm always joking about getting in touch with my inner Nazi. Ah, if it was, if my inner Nazi were as pretty as this woman, I, maybe I wouldn't mind. Uh, in any case, in any case, uh, the most striking thing that I found out, I have to study this more, we have to study this in depth, about this report is that 85% of the uh, persons, members of this new uh, fascist party in Germany are male persons. Now, get that number again, 85%. Now, you know that most political parties are basically run by the women and, you know, Aha, 85 men and 15 women. Put them in a room and tell me what you got. Anyway, uh, I cringe, I cringe. I'm not going to quote all of the things that they say in this article because I don't even know if it's, if it's altogether to be trusted. Uh, she is not apparently a charismatic speaker. Thank God. Uh, it says here that she observes the national moratorium on charisma. <laughs> That's been since, since uh, Hitler. They're calling her Adolf Fina. Oh, dear. No, no. I mustn't repeat all those uh, epithets. It just, it just is too difficult. I, I'm looking here. She comes to a protest and... Uh, Let's see, she's talking to, uh, she's talking to a protester and he says to, she says to him, you believe women should return to the kitchen? Quote, and this nervous young man says, of course I don't believe that. It's your people here who do. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, uh, what does it say here? Yes, this is the, this is the, the, uh, promo. She sends out this promo, and uh, she says, if, if this is what you believe, you know, you should come forward and tell us where you got these ideas. Her audience cheered here. It says here, yes, you believe women should return to the kitchen. You're against the protection of the environment. You have homophobic, xenophobic, and extreme right-wing tendencies. Then you've come to the right place. Thank you for your vote. It is not not a joke, folks. I'm totally confused. Uh, once again, this is a profile of Germany's new, uh, I guess, political leader. Uh, she is competing, honest to gosh, she's competing with Angela Merkel, who is in, uh, well, she's kind of, uh, she's kind of in the doghouse these days. Um there's a lot of numbers here, and as I say, it might be worth looking. I, I just, I just can't believe that this is what it is. It just seems to me uniquely alarming. Uh, mm -hmm. The uh, post-war uh, 
doctrine. Let's see, 1949, we had something called Basic German Law. It was put together by the Germans with the help of our allies. That is, it was a product of the end of World War II, you know. We were supposed to have won that war, and Germany was supposed to be a a peaceful nation for uh, all time. But, uh, oh dear, it's just, it's too painful. It's too pagan. Painful migrants, she says. Uh, mm-hmm. Migrants, migrants. What is it? The new, the new, um, yes, this is it. Their statement at the top of all their stuff, their statement reads, Islam does not belong in Germany. Okay. Now, There's a guy, he's the head of the Muslim Central Council. His name is Ayman Mazrik, A-I-M-A-N is his first name, M-A-Z-Y-E-K, Mazrik. Uh, He publicly compares this party to the Nazis. He invited this young woman, Miss Petrie, to exchange views at a summit meeting in Berlin. Uh, Other party leaders sense some danger, but this young woman she she accepted uh, she seems she seems to be gung ho anyway uh the German press corps arrived, and they sat around at see we're in the second floor of the regent hotel and uh the discussion began, and Petrie accused Masrick of wanting to impose Sharia law on Germany. Uh, anyway, in response, he produced what he said was a gift, a gift to her, yes. It was a giant copy of that German basic law, right? And uh, it was drafted in 1949, yes, under Allied supervision. Now, this guy, Masrik, head of the Islamic Council uh, in Germany, let's see, he put his signature there next to Article 4, which, of course, guarantees religious freedom. <laughs> this poor woman was in a bind. It says here, uh, if she rejected the gift, she would be disrespecting German constitution. If she accepted her forders, her supporters would say <clears throat> that she was capitulating to the caliphate. She got up, rushed out of the room, told reporters that she would hold a brief uh press conference anyway uh, <laughs> they uh uh they sat down the press sat down with her and uh, she told them uh, she told them she said i asked mr masrick whether he would approve of marriages between christians atheist christians whether he would approve of marriages between those people and muslims He could not give me a guarantee that Islam does not dominate these relationships. We came here today for guarantees and we got none. Anyway, she obviously realized she'd made a mistake. But uh, this article goes on and on about Islamophobia and about the tragic events in Germany, which seem to be much worse than I thought, an average of two-a-day assaults on the shelters for... uh, the people coming in from Syria and so forth. Fifty-five cases of arson this year. My goodness, my goodness. Uh, 
attacks are worst in this young woman's state, Petrie's state, Saxony. Uh, anyway, I have to study this up before I can make an intelligent uh, comment, but it looks like... Uh, it looks like any number of these people, members of her party, sympathize with Donald Trump. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? <laughs> I can't. I, I can't handle it anymore. I just can't handle it. Uh, I would refer you, just for, for reference, uh, to an article on uh, the Donald it's in the New Yorker of July 25th while I'm going through my New Yorkers here. Um, it's uh, all about the ghost writer of The Art of the Deal. The article is by Jane Mayer, one of the best uh, writers. The New Yorker, Jane Mayer, uh, is writing, let's see, the political scene. And she says that uh, Trump's Boswell speaks. His name is Tony Schwartz, and he's the guy that wrote a book called The Art of the Deal, and he said if he had known that Donald Trump was going to run for president, well, he says now, of course, he would title his book The Sociopath. Anyway, I've talked a little bit about this article before, but it's Tony Schwartz's mea culpa and as I said, you can find it in the July 25th New Yorker. And it is a sad, sad tale of, of course, uh, as always, the great god Moloch rules. It was money, 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 money that made Tony Schwartz write this book, The Art of the Deal. He was particularly broke at the time, but that was way back in the 80s. Let's see. Uh... Trump was only 38 when this book was written. Trump said that he wanted to write his autobiography, and Schwartz said, well, you're only 38. You don't have one yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, Trump said. If I were you, Schwartz recalls telling him, I'd write a book called The Art of the Deal. That's something people would be interested in. You're right. Trump agreed. You want to write it? Anyway, he goes on in great length, at great length, to talk about this Faustian bargain, he being a lifelong liberal. He said, I had no trust fund. So, well, there you go. So, he wrote The Art of the Deal, not The Sociopath. Uh, in any case, uh, I put it here with my pile of New Yorkers and, and tragic quotes. I did want to mention one more thing to you before I get into, let's see, Trump, dump, Trump, dump, Trump. Uh, I'll have to say that. One thing, one thing I did want to tell you about is a movie that I'm trying to get to. How about that? I'll have to study it first, I guess. But there's a movie out that is uh, full of nostalgia. I mean, I just can't wait because I, I am still one of those people who pays a lot of attention to our President Obama and his good wife, Michelle. And somebody's made a movie called Southside With You. It's in limited distribution. I don't know where you can find it right now. Uh, it seems like a stunt, I guess. The premise seems like a stunt. And once again, I'm in, in the New Yorker. And uh, uh, 
some of the yeah some of the feedback on this movie is that uh, it's awfully good. <laughs> it's a dramatization of the first date of Barack Obama and Michelle Robinson in Chicago in the summer of 1989. Writer director Richard Tanney says here it says here in the blurb. He realizes it, that is the date, the scene, with insight, wit, and the serendipitous delight of a hidden wonder caught by chance. The young Barack has a summer job in the law firm where Michelle is his second-year associate. Barack is thoughtful and passionate, endowed with a preternatural sense of strategy and empathy. He is also the more callow of the two. <laughs> Arranging for Michelle to join him at a community meeting where he gives an inspired speech. He seeks to push his public qualities and his promise to the fore. His incipient ambition is matched by Michelle's sense of responsibility and worldliness. Their depth of character is realized in the actor's controlled and alert performances, their probing and self-revealing dialogue. Here we go. Let's see. Uh, Barack is played by Parker Sawyers, and Michelle is played by Tika Sumter. She also uh, helped produce, she co-produced this film. That is a good sign. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> the director says here does it with discerning and questioning glances from the actors. Yes, he says uh, they do what, uh, let's see, agile directorial impressionism. You like that? Uh, there's a climactic sequence at which Michelle and Barack go to a screening of Do the Right Thing. <laughs> this sequence is a small masterpiece of comic psychology. This tender, intimate drama has the grand resonance of a historical epic. Once again, the movie is Southside with you. And it struck me uh, so funny because... Do the Right Thing is a movie made back in the day. And I still hear people having discussions saying, uh, after they'd seen Do the Right Thing, would you have thrown the uh, garbage cans through the window? In Do the Right Thing, the character that uh, is played by the director, uh, Spike Lee, he, um, his little character, Pookie, he starts the riot by throwing this garbage can through the window. He's so angry at the death of a young uh, young man. Uh, Radio Rashid, right, is killed by a cop who chokes him to death. And this young man loses his school. And he starts a riot. And then uh, I remember when I first saw the movie, I, I just said, I kept saying to myself, oh, don't, don't. Don't do it. And he does it, which, of course, I guess it fits the movie. It, it says this is what happens, you know, when people can't take it anymore. Uh, sad, sad, sad. Uh, 
I give up. I give up. Uh, I can't really seem to get everything in focus anymore. I do what I call triage these days. <laughs> you know, what's, what's the worst? What's the worst? Uh, I can't even look at the worst anymore. I go to the other stuff. Here I have some stuff in front of me. I have a wonderful magazine called The Sun. And it's full of, uh, it's full of nonsense about the current, uh, election and of course mostly about Donald Trump. There's an article here by a guy called Sparrow. It's a, <laughs> it's a joke. It's called A Diary of My Presidential Campaign by Sparrow. The title is Embarrassed to be an American. Sparrow is a satirist, comedian, whatever. He lives in the quiet village of Phoenicia, New York, with his wife, Violet Snow. His latest book is How to Survive the Coming Collapse of Civilization and Other Helpful Hints. Once a year, he goes to Yankee Stadium to see a baseball game. I need more of this to get me to November. It's just too, too difficult. Uh, in my imagination, the thought of the election of this sociopath is not something I can deal with objectively. Uh. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I just don't know. I just don't know. Here is Sparrow. Um, <laughs> it's it's just what is it? Uh it's not laughable. It's not laughable. Uh he writes Ted Cruz has accused Donald Trump of having New York values. In his usual evasive way, Trump responded by describing the heroism of New Yorkers after nine eleven. And I, Sparrow, am the only candidate to declare. I have nothing but New York values. I believe in sitting in the subway car with infants, slouching teenagers, octogenarians, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, Mexicans, Colombians, Ecuadorians, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, some legal, some illegal, some eating pizzas, some reading the New York Times... All of us speeding through the Stygian darkness of a deep Brooklyn tunnel. <laughs> anyway, he goes on uh, with his diary. Uh, he does note here that he uh, doesn't want to be elected. He has other things to do, but he keeps his diary anyway. Uh uh, let's see. Will Donald Trump start a race war? Well, not impossible. His followers have guns. Already audiences at his rallies have grown to resemble angry mobs shoving and sometimes punching uh, Black Lives Matter activists. Suppose a Trump lover brings a gun. Argument escalates. An activist gets shot. Maybe next time, yes. The protesters bring guns, yes. That's already happened. Uh, 
He goes on to note, the prelude to the Civil War began in 1854 after the Kansas-Nebraska Act called for a popular vote to decide whether Kansas should be a slave state. Violence broke out between armed slavery advocates and abolitionists. An election can spark a war. Oh, dear. I have this funny section on taxation. I don't have time to read it, but maybe next time I can read you some more of Sparrow's Sparrow's ideas about what we should do uh, for the election. Uh, I would just note that Tax, that taxation is the price of civilization, but <laughs> that, that, that's hard to communicate to people. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday, hopefully. Till then, this has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Kevin Pina of Flashpoints, and I'm excited to be hosting a special evening featuring fearless activist Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink and Global Exchange. Medea has written a terrifically potent new book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. Medea reveals how and why the U.S. has become such a curious partner of Saudi Arabia, a country long infamous for brutally repressing women and dissidents, supporting terrorists worldwide, and promoting the most extreme form of Islam. Medea will speak at a KPFA benefit, co-sponsored by Code Pink, on Tuesday, November 15th at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley. This event is wheelchair accessible, and tickets are available at brownpapertickets.com and supportive indie bookshops. Full information is available on the KPFA website, kpfa.org. Come join me and the KPFA community for an 